are going to be in Luke 15 today again. We were there last week, that's where we're going to be today. Uh, if you missed last week, we're going to do a little quick review, but this is the prodigal son. It's the story, if you've been in church much at all, you know this story. And so, there's just so much to it. Jesus, in his divine brilliance, tells his story in such a way where there's just levels of it. And so we thought we would, uh, by we I mean me, uh, I thought I would look at it again today because it's like this. When, when I'm like thumbing through the channels, there are certain movies or shows, if I get to them, I watch them again even though I might have seen it before a hundred times. So last night I was clicking through and Sandlot was on. Well, who doesn't want to watch Sandlot? Because it's great. And I began to think, what other movies are like that? Shawshank, I always want to know if he gets out. Uh, so I watched that, you know, because I want to know if there's a happy ending to that. And uh, I, I, So I came up with a list, my top ten list of 11 movies uh, that uh, um, I watch. The Green Mile, I always watch that one. Because there's that big dude. I don't think he's really, I think he's only five feet tall, but they make him look really big. Uh, Talladega Nights, I mean, really. It's a spiritual experience. Um, Gladiator, <laughs> I mean, uh, are you not entertained? I mean, that is just great. The Patriot, you can't not watch that, especially around 4th of July. Braveheart, um, Bruno is great, it's great. Groundhog Day, the whole point of the movie is to watch it over and over, and so I watch that a lot. Dumb and Dumber, that's a little highbrow for some of you, but that I watch that. Uh, Rocky, one, two, three, four, five. I don't know what they are. I don't know which one I'm watching, but I like every one of them, so I watch it. I always want to know if he wins at the end. You know, We Are Marshall, I watch that one. Uh, Gran Torino, and I didn't even mention, I didn't even mention the uh, great Christmas movies, Elf, uh, uh, Die Hard. Uh, so uh, uh, there's a lot of, lot of stuff I've watched over and over again. And it's kind of that way with you know some shows and... I've watched Andy Griffith so much now that I kind of know him. I can watch about six seconds and know if I want to watch the rest of it or not. But the point is this. Sometimes a story is so compelling that you just want to hear it again. And so it is with this story about the prodigal son that you just sort of want to hear it again. Um, there's a, a painting. This is by Rembrandt. It was painted in the 1660s, late 1660s. It was kind of his last work. And he was so compelled by this story that he came to this as a theme of his art several times in his life. There are sketches. He one time does a painting of himself as the prodigal. It's really, really interesting. But if you look at the painting, in his work, um, a lot of this is not an art class, by the way, but I am going to show you just a couple things about this painting. He paints a lot of things in the shadow. I don't know if you see this. You, you may not have ever seen this painting. There is a there's a lady back there. They think that's probably uh, uh, depicting um, the, the prodigal son's mom, maybe. But you can see by his use of light, there are main characters in this story. And of course, the mainest character is the prodigal son. That's the name. But they're the father who has light on his face. But here is the older son. And we don't typically talk about the older son a ton, but we are going to talk about him a little bit today. Let's review just for a second in case you weren't here last week, but you need to understand the context of the culture. The Jews adhered to a shame-honor culture. And so uh, you would do everything you could to maintain honor, and you would do everything you could to, to not be shameful uh, and bring shame upon your family. It was huge. 
And that's why the Jews didn't like um, the, the tax collectors, because they did something quite shameful. They worked for Gentiles collecting taxes, and they would collect too much. And so you have to understand that's why they didn't like uh, tax collectors. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, these are the ones, they were self-appointed arbiters of what was shameful and what was honorable. And so they felt like they had the God-given right to tell everybody else how they were supposed to live. And Jesus cranked on them all the time. And he would say things like, you all are whitewashed tombs. Uh, you are uh, clean on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. And people don't like that very much. And so they talk smack. In fact, if scribes and Pharisees had had Twitter, this is what they would have tweeted. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And they are basically saying, uh, we would never hang out with people like Jesus hangs out with. And so Jesus tells these three stories in response. He tells the story of a guy who has a hundred sheep and he loses one of his sheep and he goes and he finds it and he's excited about it and he rejoices. And then typically what happens with a parable is Jesus will tell the story and then explain the story. It's not what happens here. He tells that story about the sheep and then he tells a story about a lost coin. This woman has ten coins. Many people believe that was like a dowry. And so she loses one, and she's frantic, and she sweeps the house, and she eventually finds it. And when she finds the tenth coin, they have a celebration. So there's kind of a theme here. I, something's lost and found, and we party. Is kind of how that works. And then he tells the story of these two sons. This lost son who was found, and he begins the story. There was a man who had two sons. Now, last week we looked at the younger son, and we all know this part of the story, but let me review it real fast. He had a rebellious heart, and he asks his father uh, for his uh, inheritance early. He doesn't respect his dad. By asking for his inheritance early, he is basically saying, I'd like to get what I'm going to get when you die. Since you're not dead yet, I want my stuff now. In an honor-shame culture, that is the most egregious thing he could have done. The audience hearing the story originally would have nearly lost their minds, especially the Pharisees and the, and the, the people, who, the teachers of the law, who got to be the ones who set the rules. They, this was incredibly shameful. What should have happened is the father, in their minds, should have slapped this boy silly at the very least. It wouldn't have been unheard of for them to put him out, out of the family. And, and so he makes this shameful request, and to their shock and amazement, the father in the story grants the shameful request. And, and they would have simply been shocked by it all. And Jesus, in this story, and again, he has this brilliance in telling it. He is showing us... That God our Father gives us free will. He will not make us love Him because He can't make us love Him. You can't make somebody love you. If you've lived any time at all, you know that's how it works. And I've got a buddy named Dave up in Michigan. And Dave had a dog and he loved this dog so much. And it, you've seen those commercials where the guy's dog is sitting beside him in the pickup truck. Well, that was Dave and his dog. And I don't remember the dog's name, but he told me about the dog. And he loved the dog. And he took the dog hunting. 
and fishing, and he would take him, on, take him on jobs, and the dog was always with him. And as happens with dogs, the, dogs got old, the dog got older, and he died. And there was a mourning time for Dave, and then he decided he'd like to have another dog. And so they went to the rescue place, and they, bu- they bought a dog, and they brought him home. And this dog would have nothing to do with Dave, and it broke his heart. Because he knew what it was like to have a dog that loved him, and this dog just wouldn't. And sometimes love is unrequited, and you want them to love you so badly, but you can't make it happen. And so God, uh, Jesus tells this story as God the Father. He does let the boy make his own decisions, because love cannot be coerced. And the boy, he receives his inheritance, he squanders his inheritance in a distant land. And then he finds himself in a world of hurt. Now, he had nothing to do with the severe famine. He didn't bring it on. He has nothing to do with weather patterns. He can't make any of that happen. But he put himself in a really bad position that when this happened, he was in dire straits. He becomes a swine herd. I never heard of that word until last week, but evidently it's the herder of swine. And then he is about to starve himself literally to death. He comes to his senses. He decides he's going to head home. But if you'll recall, last week we talked about this. To go home means that you would have to go through the village to get to your father's house. And the village and everyone in the village would have known what shameful thing you'd done. And to come home means that you would face the wrath not only of your father, but also of the village. And that was a big part of the story. And yet he puts his head down. He heads toward home. The father sees him far off. He runs to him. He warmly, graciously, and to, in the eyes of the Pharisees, shamefully accepts him back. Because in their mind, you earned God's favor. And so, to just sort of show up and get in means that you, and to get back in the family means that you didn't have to do anything to earn it. And that really made them mad. So Jesus is telling this story, and he's sort of telling it to the Pharisees and the people who were religious elites. And you'll recall, he says, quick, bring the best robe, and it was a symbol of authority, and, and bring the ring, that was a symbol of you're in the family. Only, the family, only people in the family got to wear the ring, and sandals, that was a symbol of freedom, and all of these things were given to the Son. And we love this part of the story because it has a happy ending, and we love happy endings. Those movies I was talking about, happy endings, Rocky, you know what, you know how many times he wins? Every time. Every time. He wins every time. Uh, you, if you ever want to bet on that with me, I'll bet Rocky and I'll win every time. I mean, that's, he wins every time. Uh, they, all these movies, we're talking about it between services, all these movies end happily. And you're like, well, Gladiator? Yeah, he goes to the Elysian Fields with his wife. So uh, I know you all are all kind of, no, that's not happy. Well, yes, it is if you look at it the right way. Anyway, we like a happy ending. We do. We just do. And so we sort of stop. We, we read the story and the son comes home and they have a party. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's more to the story. We sort of skip the older son. Well, today we're going to look at the older son. Now, let me back up just a little bit. You need to know there's a party going on. Uh, so the boy comes home. 
The father greets him. He runs to meet him. He says, bring the fattened calf. The boy's like, he's like, I want to be one of your hired servants. And the dad's like, I don't think so. We're going to have a party. And he says, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead. And if you'll recall, last week we talked about this. When that boy took his inheritance and left to go to a distant Gentile land, they would have literally had a funeral for him as a village. He was, in their mind, dead. And so that's why he says he was dead and he's now alive again. He was lost and he's found. And so they began to celebrate. And you know what brings our Heavenly Father great joy is when someone who was lost or someone who was far away comes home. And the language is uh, we have to celebrate. It is just too much for us to not celebrate. Now, let's pick it up from there. A couple of elements of the story I want you to notice. One is you can be close and not connected. And Jesus, again, his, his divine brilliance in telling the story is amazing. Meanwhile, while the older son, he was off in a field. He was not at the house. And so, uh, while many of us know what it's like to be a prodigal, Many of us also know what it's like to be the older son. We're sort of the ones who have stayed the course. And the Pharisees have hated this whole story. They hated the shameful way the young son treated the father. They hated the way the father treated the young son. They're looking for their hero, and here he is. And they are super excited. Hey, finally, we got a guy who's like us. And when it says he was uh, in the field, a, a nobleman didn't actually work the field. He was sort of a supervisor of those who worked. And so he would sit under a, a, a shady tree. Uh, he was eating, you know, drinking an Arnold, Arnold Palmer. I can't even say that. Arnold Palmer. Uh, he was drinking one of those. Uh, he was uh, just hanging out, you know, watching what was going on. He was making sure people were working, but he really wasn't working himself other than in a supervisory role. And he's out in the field, and all of a sudden, he comes home. Now, what's super interesting about this story is that nobody told him there was a party going on. In that culture, the older son had responsibilities. Everybody knew it. Everybody understood this. The older son was responsible to guard and accentuate the honor of the family. He was the honor hype man for the family. A party like this would have been thrown and everybody in the village would have been invited. And it would have been his job, because it was an honor to be invited to a party like that, it would have been, an honor, it would have been his job, his responsibility to plan the party and to invite people to the party. And yet he wasn't even told about the party. And there's a reason. The father under, understood his heart. He knew his heart. If this boy really cared about the honor of his younger brother, he would have said something. He wouldn't have let that boy do what he did. That boy uh, going to his daddy and being shameful with that request, an older brother should have stopped that. But he didn't. And that older brother, the older son, had a responsibility to his dad to not let him give the inheritance away. He should have stopped it, but he didn't. And so 
the, old, the, the dad didn't tell the older brother about it because he knew the older brother didn't care about it. And it is, it, it is, there's this picture that he's painting. A, a, a couple of metaphors here. One is both sons were distant from the father. One was distant uh, literally. The other was distant spiritually. He was close. He was close in proximity, but he wasn't close in uh, relationship. He lived nearby. He just wasn't close. And so Jesus is telling this story, and he's basically saying they were both far away. One was distant in a distant land, but the other had a distance in his spirit to his father. Something else you really kind of need to understand. Um, The father's estate was massive. For you to own enough land in that era, in that time, in that place, for your son to be far, far away, to be in a field, work in a field over there, and not know what was going on at the family farm, was remarkable. I mean, that, the, the picture that the original audience would have gotten was, oh my word, this must have been a huge field. This must have been a huge operation for the boy to be so far in a foreign field that he didn't know what was going on at home. Well, that would have been a lot, a lot of land. It reminds me of that joke about the guy who was a Texan. You know, Texans always think they're bigger and everything's better. And, and so he, he meets a guy from Kentucky and he says, yeah, my farm's so big, I can get in my truck in the morning and drive all day and won't even get to the end of it at night. The guy from Kentucky said, yeah, I had a truck like that too one time. Uh, so uh, you have to understand the context. And so Jesus tells this story and even that little nuance of the story would have been, oh, wow. And so God, uh, Jesus is saying, hey, the, the, the kingdom of God is huge. Vast resources. And this boy is out in a field, and he came near the house, and he heard the music, and he's and dancing. And what should have occurred is this boy ran to the house to celebrate that the uh, other boy has come home. The Pharisees and the scribes do not understand the grace of God. They just don't get it. They thought and they taught you had to earn your way into the kingdom. The only way you get in is if you earn your way into the kingdom. You have to do the right things. You have to say the right things. You have to be the right person. And if you're not right in your actions... You are rejected by God. This was the way they taught and the way they thought. And so Jesus is telling this story and they are literally losing their minds. They they don't get the grace of God. They just don't understand it. And this is a celebration. And they would have killed the fatted calf. And... um, when you've killed the fatted calf, you were going to have a party and it was going to last a while because it took a while to prepare and to, and to cook and to eat. And so today, like if you have a party, like a, your, your kid's turning one, you have a party and you'll say on the party, starts at 6, ends at 6.05, you know, something like that. Uh, it doesn't, you, you set some parameters, right? Well, this culture, no parameters. We're having a party. Stay all you want, you know, that kind of thing. And different cultures do it different ways. 
I was in Tanzania once and I was preaching at a, a church in Tanzania and they are not on a clock. Like here, man, we start on time. We have a countdown clock that is so foreign to the Tanzanians. They, they sort of, when everybody showed up, they started. And then they sang a while, they preached a while, and they did stuff a while, and then they hung out a while, and, and eventually they, they quit. You know, I went to Russia, same kind of deal. They, they kind of started when everybody got there. Best I can remember, I was part of this, uh, this worship service. We sang at least 12 hymns. There were seven or eight special musics. I know there were six preachers. I was so hungry by the time this was over, I could have eaten a hymnal. I mean, I was dying. And then it wasn't over. Uh, you had church, in the, there's two floors. You had church upstairs, and then you had a, uh, like a, a, a dinner after church. And I remember having borsk soup. I think it's beet soup. And they had potatoes in it. It was yummy because I was so hungry. Uh, 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 I couldn't ask for seconds because I didn't know how. Uh, but, uh, but that culture was different. And so this culture, when it talks about they're having this party, well, yeah, that they would have had this huge party and it would have lasted as long as people wanted to stay. Now for me, if you have a party at my house, um, there's going to be a time where I say, you can stay, but I'm going to go to bed. And that's kind of me. But these people, man, they, they partied until it was over. Now let me ask you a question you probably never thought of before. The fatted calf, he's hired people to cook the calf, he's hired people to dance, there's music, somebody's there to play music, it would have hired somebody like that. The question is, who's paying for that? Now you're going to say the father, Mm-mm. because he already divided up his stuff. Who, whose is this? This is the oldest son's. The father, on the back of his camel, had a bumper sticker. I'm spending my kids' inheritance. I mean, that's what it said. He's spending the older son's resources. That's what he's doing. Now, what I want you to think about from the older son's perspective what that would mean. Look, the boy has already taken a third of everything. Remember, the older son got double, so this boy would only have gotten a third, and he went and squandered it. He's already taken a third. They would have had to sell a third of their assets. That would have been property. That would have been uh, animals and that sort of thing. He's already sold a third of it off. And now he's depleting the resources even more. And <laughs> this, this is outrageous. However, when the boy heard the party, he should have run home and joined the party. Because this boy that they thought was dead, well, he's alive. And this boy that broke the dad's heart, well, the dad's heart is healed. That's not what happens. So he called a servant. By the way, the word servant here is a Greek word that means little boy. It's likely that all the adult servants are in the house at the party, serving at the party. And he calls one of the little boys and he asks him what's going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And this young man would have gone nuts. He's spending my money to throw a party for this brother I don't even like. I mean, think about it. Now, 
A fatted calf in that time at that place would have fed about 100 or 200 people. It was kind of interesting to me to read about this. In that culture, they didn't eat a lot of meat. They couldn't have a lot of meat. And so to have meat at all was a, was a big deal. And so they would cook it in little chunks, and they would, it would take all day to cook, and they would you know, put it in the... Basically, they, they uh, roasted it in the ovens that they typically used to bake bread. And so everybody would get a little bit, and they could feed lots of people. And so you wouldn't get a Whopper if you went to this party. It was kind of, uh, they were kind of skimpy on the, on the meat. But then this expression... Your brother has come home, your father's killed the fatted calf, because he has him back safe and sound. Now obviously, that is an English sort of phrase. It's an English phrase to translate a Greek word that is in the family of the word shalom. We all know what shalom means, peace. So this boy, this slave boy, goes out to the older son and says, your dad has made peace with the younger son who went out and squandered he didn't even have to do anything he, he didn't even have to do anything he didn't have to do anything for there to be peace he is in shalom with his brother he's made peace it has been instant complete restoration and for the older son that is the worst possible scenario he yes he, he, he has just gotten over on his dad that's kind of what he's thinking here here's the truth some people resent grace and the older brother became angry and refused to go in and the pharisees and the scribes would have it would have been a cheer Wah! a finally somebody with some moral fortitude that will will not they're not going to be a part he's not going to be a part of a shameful party thrown for a shameful son by a shameful father. This is their hero. The Pharisees and the scribes, they connect with the older son. And Jesus just waylays them all the time. One time he said, What sorrow awaits you teachers of the religious law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. I mean, Jesus, <laughs> he, it's not even nice. Uh, you know, it's like, you're a bunch of hypocrites. For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb garden, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. And what Jesus is saying is, you boys are experts in the letter of the law, but you stink when it comes to the spirit of the law. You do all the external stuff, but you don't understand why you do it. We, we, we're to do things for a reason. You're not even getting the reason. And Jesus is always on these guys. But, and here's the beauty of this story. Alright, so, the young son, he has behaved atrociously. Well, now the older son also is behaving atrociously. He should have gone into the party, but he doesn't. Here's what I love about this story. So the father went out and pleaded with him. Now, you won't know this until I tell you this. This is super important. The father, you'll recall, when he saw his son far off, he hiked up his robe so he could run. Uh, a, a nobleman in that country at that time never ran and never exposed his legs. This was shameful. 
And he does it because he knows that if the village gets to that boy first, they are going to kick him out of the, uh, of the, of the area. And so he takes on the shame of running through town. A nobleman doesn't run. He doesn't expose his legs. He does both those things to get to the son first. Equally egregious is for someone to leave a party to go out to speak to someone. Very rude. Shameful. He does something shameful to reach his younger son, and now he does something shameful to reach his older son. And here's what's really interesting to me. The young son obviously dishonored his, his dad. I, I wish you were dead. I want my stuff. Well, this son is also dishonoring his dad. He is basically saying to his father, you are making the wrong decision. I, I, I question your wisdom. I question your thought process. Why in the world would you welcome this young son back when he's done nothing to earn it? And when it says that he pleaded with him, the word literally means to come alongside someone. And so this is how I picture it. This older son is out there and he's arms crossed and his head is down and the daddy sidles up beside him and they both kind of have their heads down and he starts to tell him why he should come to the party. He sort of makes an argument for it. Hey, there's, there's a reason. The, the, you, you should come in. Remember, your brother, we had a funeral service for him. But he's back. And I have grieved over that. And he's back. And we would both like you to come in and be part of the celebration. But he answered his father. He says, look. Now, <laughs> again, incredibly disrespectful. When the, boy, when the young boy came home to talk to his dad, what did he say? He, he bowed his head. He said, Father, he, he was respectful. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Very respectful. This is incredibly disrespectful. Again, the audience would have picked up on this. Why in the world would he have done that? And then he kind of cranks on it a little bit. All these years I've been slaving for you. Well, not really. All these years he's been slaving for him. It, it is a good time for us, who, those of us who follow Jesus, to ask this question. Do I serve God because I, I want to get something from him? Or do I serve God because I love him? Sometimes we think God owes us. Well, I've been, I've been tithing, or I've been coming to church, or I've been doing it, I've been serving in children's ministry. I've been, and you can list your, uh, your volunteerism or your giving or whatever. You can list it. Like, God, you, you sort of owe me something. You kind of owe me. All these years, I've done these things. And then he says, and, then he says, and never disobeyed your orders. I always do the right thing. 
I read about a guy named, uh, his name is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, he was, during the Enlightenment, he wrote a book called Confessions, and he dedicated it, this is how he dedicated it, to me, with the admiration I owe myself. I, I think that, that is the greatest book dedication of all time. I mean, that's, that's awesome. Hey, I'm a narcissist, look at me. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, well, what we have to understand is just because you do good doesn't mean you are good. What this guy is saying is, hey, I've done all the right stuff. My attitude stinks. My attitude toward my brother isn't good. My attitude toward you isn't good. But I have done the good things. And just because you do good doesn't mean you are good. And then he says this. Yet you have never even given me a young goat. And so now he starts to make this comparison. <laughs> your son who has wasted everything he gets a fatted calf I have wasted nothing and I get nothing not even a goat goats are smaller than calves by the way and, and so uh, you, you have given him uh, a great feast I get no feast you've invited the, the town to this party I can't even have a party with friends and there is a there's a an innuendo here that basically says, if I were to have a party, I would invite my friends and not you. And not my brother. And then, just to rub salt in the wound, but when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, he wants to make sure the dad doesn't forget what the boy has done. You kill the fatted calf. I am the good son and he is the bad son. And he won't even say my brother. He says this, um, this son of yours. Jesus is brilliant. And I want you to notice the patience of the father. My son... Now, the boy just said, look, this is gentle and kind. When, when the father says, my son, this is an opportunity into relationship. There are two different words in the Greek language for son. One, one is sort of generic and one is tender. This is the tender son. You know, sometimes if you have a son, you'll say, boy, come on over here. That's, that's sort of the, the, the technical one. But this one is uh, son. And again, the audience would have gotten it. Oh, what, what, he's, what he's saying is, is kind. My son. It's interesting when you look in Scripture. The religious elite often didn't follow Jesus. There's a lot of times they didn't follow Him. In fact, the only two religious elites that we know of that I can remember that followed Jesus is a guy named Nicodemus uh, and a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, those are the two that kind of fall in line here. And he says, boy, everything I have is yours. Everything I have is I mean, you're with me. You're here. It's, it's yours. Some gifts, by the nature of the gift require that you swallow your pride. Just in the giving of the gift, they require that you swallow your pride. Let's say one of your friends finds out that you have come upon hard times financially, and without uh, any solicitation by you, they offer you some money so that you can uh, get back on your feet. And you have to swallow your pride to take that. 
Suppose you get a, a Christmas gift box like this, and inside the box there are two items. One is a dieting book, and one is a gym membership. And by accepting the gifts, you're saying, okay, I, I admit I'm overweight and need exercise. I mean, you have to kind of swallow your pride. Now, this is probably your expression uh, if you got a gift like that. But he says, everything I have is yours. It's ours for the taking. But nobody gets into the kingdom without repentance. The, the dude just sort of said, I don't, I don't need to repent. I, I've never left. Do everything right. Done all these good things. Nobody struts into heaven. And then he, he says, we had to celebrate. <laughs> we didn't really have a choice. We had to celebrate. And then it stops. And everybody that's ever read this story says to themselves, well, what happened? We know what there was a happy ending with the young son. He came home. He was welcome home. They have a party. This guy, the scene ends with the father standing next to his son, and we don't know what happened. It's kind of frustrating. What's really interesting about this, if you look at it, this story is broken into two parts. The first half is about the younger son, eight stanzas. The second part is about the older son, seven stanzas. If Hallmark were in charge of the story, and it was a movie, the story would go like this. And the older son comes to his senses, runs into the party, embraces his younger son, they make up, and they run the farm together for the rest of their lives. Jesus did not write for Hallmark. Because he leaves this, he just, it's like, the end. It's just sort of interesting. Now, can I go back to Rembrandt just for a second? <laughs> I can. I'm in charge. Uh, uh, this is sort of a close-up. What's really interesting to me is art uh, critics look at this. Notice his hands. His right hand is smaller than his left hand. Uh, critics will tell you, the art critics say, that this hand is a feminine hand. This hand is a masculine hand. And what they were thinking is, perhaps Rembrandt was painting this in such a way that he was saying, okay, God is not just our protector, he is also our healer. There's the hand of, of healing, like a mother. There's also the hand of protection, like a father. And look at how he sort of is in, in covering his son. He's protecting his son. Rembrandt was interesting. He had a wife... Her name was uh, Saskia. They had a son named Titus. Saskia died when Titus was 10 months old. As artists sometimes are, he was a little flighty. He wasn't good with money. He would spend on things he shouldn't have spent on. Uh, he was often in debt. His son Titus, though, was the good son and made sure that his father's uh, art sold and he kept kind of things afloat and they were a good team together. And then his son at 26 year old, uh, years old, Titus, also passes away. 
And when Titus passes away, he paints this picture. And he's old and tired and broken. And he paints a father who is old and tired and broken, embracing his son. I I like that picture. I like the idea that God embraces us and loves us and He's gentle with us. He is our healer and our protector. And every one of us, we all get to write the ending to our story. Because God gives us freedom to. He let the younger son go into a distant land. He squandered his living. He'll let us do that. We can, we're free. We can stay around and be judgmental. He lets us do that. But what He wants is for us to come home. Whether we're in a distant land or in a distant field, He wants us to come home. And we get to write our stories. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this amazing, amazing story that Jesus told so many years ago that is so applicable to us today. I pray, God, that we might put it in our hearts, that we might be attentive to Your voice this week. Help us to know where we need to adjust our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.